When I got back from touring, I hadn't had a scan because we'd been on the road. So in we went, Marty's holding my hand. What I was told was, are you ready for some good news? Said the ultrasound lady. And I said, yes, really loud. And I felt Marty's <laughs> hand start sweating. He's like, yes. And she said, you're having twins. <gasps> Wow. And I went, oh, my God. And Marty goes, are they co-joined in any way? I went, what? <laughs> Welcome to Talking in Common, a podcast of all things lifestyle, family, motherhood, relationships, kids and culture. This is not a how-to, but an insight into the lives of ourselves and others and how we all manage to get by. So take a listen and let's find out what we all have in common. Hello and welcome back. We have a very special episode for you today. I'm Kate. And I'm Sophie. We recently spoke to the wonderfully generous and kind Claire Bowditch. Claire is a woman of many talents and she's so inspiring. She's a musician, actress, best-selling author, life coach, broadcaster, and of course, she's a mum. We had an absolute ball chatting and laughing with Claire, didn't we? Oh my God, we seriously had the best time. And I loved how she was knitting a blanket for her daughter, Asha, while we were talking. (laughs) So sweet. It was so lovely. She shared some of her early motherhood experiences with us, as well as her birthing story with her twins. Wow. Oh my God, major wow. She also shared some great insight into the techniques she's learned to harness her anxiety over the years and also how she uses them still today. There's so much good stuff. Anyway, let's not hold off any longer. Here she is. So Claire, welcome to Talking in Common. We both feel really honoured to be able to have you here to chat with us today. Oh, I feel mm-hmm. honoured to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, I'm just, I'm so excited. And I just wanted to say to you before we get into it that I recently read your book, Your Own Kind of Girl, and I could not put it down and I just want to thank you for being really open and honest and sharing your journey. I can't begin to think how many people you must have helped and given comfort to. That's a real, really beautiful to hear. Thank you. Thank you for giving it a a read through. It makes me happy. One question we love to ask all our guests on Talking You can ask me anything. Okay, good. Absolutely anything. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll start off with um, what did you want to be growing up? (laughs) Besides Miss World. Um, (laughs) True. So when I was a really little girl, I was born in 1975, which makes me 45 years young now. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was a kid, there was a show, which you will know, called The Muppets. And on there, my favourite character in the world, Hiya! Miss Piggy. And she was, I don't know, I just loved her spunk and overconfidence and I thought she was great fun. And she was also one of the few characters who was sort of a fuller-figured character. You know, she wasn't even a woman. She was a a character and I was a big kid and I just really looked up to Miss Piggy. I loved her. I loved Kermit. Um, So she was my hero. And then uh, one day I was watching television around that same era and, yeah, I really did see a Miss World competition and I heard the song, the most beautiful girl in the world <laughs> is me. And, you know, at the age of five I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely going to grow up and be a beauty queen because I wanted to save the world. I, I found out quite quickly I did not have the body to play a beauty queen in those days. What I did have was a voice that loved singing and it became pretty clear pretty early on that I love telling stories too. So I think being a singer and being a writer, they were the things that I hoped to be as a kid. How about you guys? Well, I, I wanted to be a ballerina. Oh, you got the height for it, that's for you sure. You wanted to be a pop star, You to be Kate. a ballerina? 
I okay, I haven't got to me yet. Of course I wanted to, you know. Music was always a love of mine from an early age. So Of course it was. I was always, you know, throwing concerts for any single person that would uh give me the chance to do it, basically. Anyone that would come over, yeah. like, come on, let me get up there. Let me let me show you what I can do. So I had a funny sort of battle of my own when I was young because I grew up with five older brothers, Claire. So really? I tried really hard to be a tomboy just so I could fit in and, oh and with them. And Crazy I did a pretty time. good job of it. But really underneath, I just really wanted to be a really girly, girly ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> so I oh hit it gosh. for years with Tonka trucks and footballs and other various boy things. <laughs> well, uh, the interesting thing is that I like about this day and age is that perhaps there's more chance to be both. Yeah, you know, exactly. both of those things. I just want to apologise up front because, look, I'm in Melbourne. I'm homeschooling three kids at the moment. It's lunchtime for them and you will hear them in the background. <laughs> I know that this that's welcome on this podcast because that's kind of what we're, t- you know, that's absolutely. One of we're talking about. Yeah, But um, if you hear clanging, if you hear two 13-year-old boys perhaps yelling at each other, <laughs> using language that may or may not be appropriate. <laughs> Apology yeah. accepted All and right. likewise if you hear a crying baby. All the um, oh, yeah. things we've got to look forward to with my two girls and your baby girl when they get older. Um, <laughs> true. <laughs> hear that laugh? <laughs> That's the laugh of a hysterical woman. <laughs> I admire the parents homeschooling kids, Far especially out. teenagers. And you've got one in what, year 12, you said. That's, well, I that's, do. that's so tricky. I- Mum of three, um, my girl Asha, my darling firstborn, is 17 years old and she's doing year 12 and she's doing brilliantly but it's really a tough slog, I think, Mm. I really feel for this generation. I mean, they're going to be making up for it. They're going to be the biggest celebratory party-ish generation because they're going to be making up for this time and living life. Yes, they will be. But um, you can't see this, dear listener, but I'm I'm sitting here and I'm knitting a blanket for my daughter. <laughs> and I'm saying, you're like, why are you knitting a A beautiful blanket silver blanket. <laughs> silver blanket with the easiest ever big fat stitch on a circular knitting needle. And I guess I'm trying to put in a rite of passage, you know, for the fact that my, my girl is, isn't going to be able to mark this time with the valedictory dinner or the schoolies week or so on. And I realise mm. that it... it a blanket really doesn't do much. It's probably more for me than her. But. Are you just realising that now as you're saying no, it out I loud? I knew it. I knew it. But um, I'm a third of the way in now and i just got to keep going. It just, you know, she'll be moving out of home one of these days, something she can yeah. carry with her. Now that must seem so far away to you guys. But I think that's beautiful. I truly do. I would love that. Me too. Especially with all these mistakes in it, you know. It's like you look at it and go, it's okay to make mistakes. Mum makes Mm. mistakes. (laughs) So, Claire, can you tell us more about you as a mum? So, as you mentioned, you've got three teenagers, twins. This is something, you know, Soph and I talk a lot about the transition to becoming a mother, which Mm. is obviously something that was a few years ago for you now. But if you think back to that Mm. time, what was it like for you? My transition to becoming a mother was sudden. So I always knew I wanted to be a mum. I was one of those girls who really did want to be a mum. I was, my mother was one of 11. My father was one of five. I was one of five. Amazing. And I had never really picked up that you couldn't be a mum and and have a career. I did decide, however, that I wanted the kind of career where I would have some choice. I knew I wanted to be a pretty hands-on mum and that meant running my own business. I didn't know, I didn't have any faith that I'd be able to make my living doing what I was best at, which was creating and making stories. I didn't think there was room for a girl like me in an industry like music. (laughs) So look, I got really lucky. I was always making songs and I 
happened to meet a guy called John Hedigan. It was at a beautiful festival on the banks of the Murray River. And John was a musician and he said to me, do you sing? And for once I was brave and I said yes and we started singing and soon we started a band and then he introduced me to his housemate, Marty, Marty Brown, the tallest, hottest drummer in the whole of the Fitzroy (laughs) Shire. How tall is Marty? He's six, he five. is so tall, right? <laughs> <laughs> he really is. He's really tall. He had the cutest face and he was such a good guy. And I don't know about you, uh, my friends listening, but I didn't have the best, you know, for the fact that I wanted to be a mum, I really was a sort of serial monogamous and I did want to start my motherhood journey probably in a few years' time, you know. It was always in a few years' time. Um, you know, Marty was my really good friend and I didn't want to stuff up this beautiful friendship by getting all romantic early but the truth was we were in love with each other we were for some years and when that dam finally broke and we finally went out on a date well within three months we were pregnant with our first child and my um journey into early motherhood was really really benefited from the fact of where I lived so I lived in a community in Thornbury in Melbourne which we called jokingly compost there were nine (laughs) houses no back fences that started in the 70s and it was just a group of people, mates, who bought cheap houses all around each other and they were really into permaculture. So awesome. mm. there hadn't been a compost baby for generations. <laughs> I'd lived there already for, you know, I was the youngest person there moving in at 21. Everyone was was older than me and it was just a wonderful, supportive place to live. Mm. But, you know, at that same time when I was having a baby, my friend Rachel, who next door was having a baby, my friend Annabelle was having a baby. So I got to do this journey into motherhood in friendship and I've got to say I think that saved my goddamn life. How good mm. is that, sharing that with your close friends? There's a couple of... We became close friends really quickly. You yeah. Know, we were friends before, but you really bond when you have kids together and so you learn to ask for help together, you know, and that meant going, hey, Rach, can I, I'll take, you know, your little one while she was writing a brilliant book about motherhood. It's still around. It's called Creativity and Motherhood. It was called yeah. The Divided Heart. It's a brilliant book about artists who are mothers. It was a trailblazing book. And I was recording my first album in the back shed with Marty called Autumn Bone, my first solo album, and she'd have Asha. So that's how we did it. And that doesn't mean I avoided, you know, I still had a whole lack of sleep. I didn't realise I had postnatal Mm. depression, which was triggered by a lack of sleep. That hit me at six months and and it wasn't until Asha mm. was 13 months old that I went, all oh, right, I actually need a little bit of support around this and got some good counselling and asked, started asking for more help. But I just like being upfront about that because I was struggling to make it look good. I was in the start of my music career. I was desperately wanting to do something that will make this daughter proud. Yeah. But I, I, I wasn't established yet at all. I was scared of performing. I was having anxiety. I was, you know just having one song played on Triple J and then trying to tour off the back of that and I didn't ever imagine I'd be sitting here with the joy of being asked onto a podcast and getting to meet <laughs> and talk about this, you know, with, with your crew. But that's that was my experience. Mm. So having a newborn is so intense as it is yes. without, you know, trying to launch and, and nurture your career at the same time. So You've done a bloody good job. Um, we really learnt to live really well on beans. We were, <laughs> we were baroque. You do what you got to do. You do what you got to do and it really yeah. didn't matter because actually we didn't need much. We got given, you know, I know everyone these days has beautiful new things and so on, but 17 years ago when I became a mum, I just got all the hand-me-downs from my older sisters. We didn't need much, you know. We just were mm. saying, why don't we give this a crack now yeah. while our baby's young? Yeah. You know, so, And I know a lot of... Uh, a lot of your listeners have that same sort of entrepreneurial spirit in them and I really 
commend them on that and ask them to go for it. Soph and I have actually been listening to your audiobook, Tame Your Inner Critic. Mm-hmm. I've picked up some pretty good little tools from you, I think. Wonderful. It's been great. But I wanted to ask you about one thing you referenced, which was your experience of giving birth to your twins and you used the <laughs> FAFL technique by Dr. Claire Weeks <laughs> to get through it. Can you tell us about this? I mean, number one, giving birth to twins yes. and yeah. how you got through that mm. experience. I, um, I was a confident birther. You know, my mum's and her 10 siblings were all born at home in Holland. In Holland, where we're from, the Amsterdam people, it's very normal and natural to give birth in a home setting. And I'd always thought that I would have a home birth. You know, I just felt confident about it. But when it came to that time when we were going to give birth Mm -hmm. in Australia, home births were extremely expensive. Like they were, Mm -hmm. you know, almost an annual wage for what us musicians are living on at the time. So I went and gave birth in a birthing centre. So my first experience of giving birth was actually fabulous. You know, I think of it as a mountaintop experience and this is not to minimise the enormity of the task and the pain, but I had educated myself within an inch of my life. I knew that if I did want the kind of birth that I wanted, which was I had had an experience at 21 of really acute anxiety and I knew that I wanted to minimise the chance of triggering that again. So I wanted the kind of birth that didn't leave me torn and needing to have surgery, needing to recover, not able to bond, not able to breastfeed. And so I was quite educated about birth and I thought, you know, I've got this licked. It was a big journey and I couldn't wait to get home afterwards. I just wanted to get on with my life as a mum. Then I found out magically the when I was 22 weeks pregnant with my second that it was a second and a third. You know, we'd been touring <laughs> wow. around Australia wow. and we'd been in the tour van. The clue was we'd been in the tour van um, playing Splendour in the Grass. We'd um, just been nominated for our first Aria Award. Things were starting to finally take off with our career. And I was sick as a dog. I was throwing up before stage oh, and I was still God. sick um, 18, 19, 20, 21 weeks in. But I thought we've got to get this this tested. Anyway, <laughs> I went, I was planning that time to have a home birth. Um, I had a fantastic midwife, a really experienced independent midwife, one of the best in Australia called Jenny Teske. She's on my team. When I got back from touring, I hadn't had a scan because we'd been on the road. So she said, mate, let's go get a scan because there's something unusual about this. And she had a clue, I think. In we went, Marty's holding my hand and I was waiting to be told there was something really wrong with my baby. So I was actually quite frightened Mm. about the news I was going to receive. But instead, what I was told was, are you ready for some good news? Said the (laughs) ultrasound lady. And I said, "Ah." Yes, and then I felt Marty's, I felt, yes, really loud, and I felt Marty's <laughs> hands start sweating. I was like, yes. And she said, you're having twins. <gasps> wow. And I went, oh, my God. And Marty goes, are they co-joined in any way? I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, love, heard the word I love co-joined. you're just like two beautiful, healthy babies, Mama. He's like, are they co-joined? Like, <laughs> well, the reason he asked was, um, and I didn't even know this about him, he'd had some friends in childhood who were some of the first um, separated, conjoined twins in Australia. So, you know, there was some basis in that for him, but right, we found that we right. were having identical boys, you know, the joy began. So it, it's a high-risk pregnancy when you're pregnant with twins. So mm. Jenny and I were able to go in together to the birthing centre. I had a lot of trouble um, arguing for my right to have a low intervention birth with yeah. The twins, of course, everyone understands that there are additional factors at play. I needed to get scanned every week and so on um, mm. to make sure that they weren't co-joined and they, they didn't have twin-to-twin transfer. But 
when it came that day, that special day to give birth, I carried my twins. I had a very healthy pregnancy. I put on a great deal of weight, which they say is related to good birth outcomes with twins. And then some, I had a really good time gobbling through my pregnancy. It was wonderful. But there we were on birthing day. I was 39 and a half weeks pregnant. That's quite wow, that's... a lot with twins. Yeah. I often mm. give birth earlier. And we were in there and we had a wonderful team around us, but it's hard not to freak out when you're giving birth to one and then you know there's another one to go. So mm. I had to go back to a technique that I have used all of my life to help me manage my anxiety, manage that loud voice of the inner critic, manage my fear and my self-doubt, and mm. that is the FAFL. So that's acronym for FACE, ACCEPT, FLOAT and LET TIME PASS. And it's a technique that was um, first introduced to me by a book called Self-Help for Your Nerves, which is a book that really helped me get over and live with my um, anxious mind. It was by a stalwart Australian doctor called Dr. Claire Weeks. Mm -hmm. She was born in the 20s. She was the first Australian woman to get a doctorate as a zoologist and then a GP. And it was a really simple technique that she taught to people who were, we now realise, having a post-war veteran suffering from PTSD. But back then they called it bad nerves, raw nerves. Mm. And this baffle technique really helped me. And it is something that I've, I've practised and had to keep practising. I do it quite often still. Mm. But to be able to dismiss the, the inner critic by a FOF technique, which was we might get to later, and, and to be able to accept the moment in between the two births was a pretty handy thing to have and you're just doing it in microseconds as anyone who's given birth knows. So the first baby came out and weighed eight pounds and oh. then the second baby came out weighing seven pounds. Oh, so there was a lot yeah. of baby in there and one of the things that I haven't spoken that, about. That's a good will, size for twins, right? Bloody good. Yeah, They're so good, bloody great, good. healthy babies. But to just make this point that they were they were good, great, healthy babies. But when my son came out, Oscar, he didn't breathe for 13 minutes. It was a, the worst oh, wow. okay. 13 minutes of our life. You know, he really came out in a shock because there was quite a bit of panic about the first one coming out without them having administered an epidural yet. You know, mm -hmm. so Elijah came out and then there was a lot of panic. You know, here in Australia, it's it's very difficult for doctors to manage that balance between what is best for the mother in her knowledge and what they need to control to feel yeah. safe. And so there was some panic and quite a bit of intervention. Oscar came out quite shocked and white and chirping like a little bird when he did eventually breathe and thank goodness for that wonderful team there. Mm. Were you aware us. of what was going on at the time? I was and I was faffling like a mofo. So <laughs> this again is the wonderful thing um, of having a support team, so being able to have Jenny there and also Alice, and a secondary mm. midwife who I brought in with me because I wanted continuity of care. It was just too terrifying to give birth to twins with mm. I didn't know who was going to be there on the day. Yeah. Um, but I knew what was going on at the time. Jenny was reassuring me and his heart was beating and Marty was out there with him and I was holding the first twin and just trying to concentrate on the moment, accept the mm. moment, understand I had no control over it and just stay there. Everyone was terrified. And when Marty came in, the best moment of our lives, came in with tears in his eyes and said, he's breathing. Oh, <laughs> oh what a relief. Thank God, oh my little gosh. Shit. 
my God. Yeah. Little, naughty little so boy. Is his personality a bit like that now? Does he ever, does he have you on your feet or does do you see any? Look, he's he's really independent. He does his own thing. You know, he's a very mm. self, self-reliant little unit, um, absolutely gorgeous and so loving and, you know, he made a chirping sound. He really didn't cry for a few days. He's quite calm. Um, I remember having to teach him how to feed and I had that sucking reflex didn't come easily to him, all of those things. And anyway, he was the first to roll, the first to grow a tooth, et cetera, et cetera. His personality is just he's going to do it when he wants to do it and he'll do it <laughs> in his own good time. Yes. I so think childbirth is the perfect example to use the Fafel technique because I remember one of my girlfriends told me right before I was about to give birth just to surrender to your physical body and let go of the thoughts and just trust your physical body. That's what it's designed to do. And that really stuck with me through the whole process. And, you know, surrendering is a very similar concept to the faffle, I suppose, you know, just allowing things to sort of come in, pass and um, And be able to overcome them. Do you remember that rising panic where sometimes you would go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, in between contractions. I'm not sure if you had this, but that feeling Mm. of like a little dread would come in that I've got to do it again and I do it again. Oh, absolutely. Midwife absolutely. Saying, I was scared take, shitless yeah. every yeah. time. I was like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> and that turning point where someone goes, just take the moments, that yeah. full relaxation in your yeah. 30 second break or whatever yeah. it was. And that is absolutely what saved yeah. me. But and it, I assume it's what saves marathon runners. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it is a marathon, isn't it? It absolutely is. And it's the biggest mind game. It, <laughs> it's, it's you know, it's all in your head because your physical body is more than capable. So it's true. all in your head. So, so it's so an incredible true. experience. But I wanted to ask, Kate and I regularly talk about the different sort of worries and anxieties that come along with motherhood. So and many you've obviously spoken. Yeah, so many. You've <laughs> spoken very openly about your struggles with anxiety throughout your life. Did becoming a mother trigger this further for you or in a different way or did it help mm. sort of calm and settle well, the anxiety? Look, it was different for both. It's a great question because I know yeah. that with my first baby I did not talk about it enough but there wasn't yeah. that open conversation. I was quite ashamed of how out of control I felt sometimes with my very normal, natural experience of motherhood. I can see that now looking back. Mm -hmm. But I'll start with probably the most recent one, which was the boys. Because I'd had an experience of anxiety at 21 and then again when I'd given birth to Asha, nowhere near as severe with my, with my, I was just going to say it's an advantage if you've um, had some anxiety before you become a mother because you do have some skills actually to deal with it. But I was really terrified of having an experience of postnatal depression or anxiety with the twins because the statistics say you're almost twice as likely to have such an experience. So and I didn't with the twins. I was really proactive about getting, making sure that I had good support, good therapy. I'd learnt to ask for help. You know, I was less sort of um, stringent with breastfeeding. I was very happy to do a combination of feeding. All of those things that made it better for me to be able to be present to this experience. I took a bit more time off work. We did mm. record an album, you know, when they were six months old and go touring with John Butler and, and um, of course you did. the yeah. wife's. Uh, <laughs> When in a big gang when they were about nine months old and that, you know, I look back and go, that was all too soon, but gosh, it was really fun. Yeah. 
But when it came to my first birth, I think I had the classic story of, um, well, my father had just been diagnosed with early dementia. Marty and I were in a new relationship. I didn't have an established career yet and I was Mm. really determined to do something to try as hard as I could to set an example, as I said, for my Mm. kid and for myself to really be able to live these dreams and not give up because I was a mum. It wasn't an option. I Mm. I might have happily done that but we were if we ha- were in different circumstances, but Marty and I were both in it together, you know, thick as thieves. Teamwork makes the dream Team work, hey? We say, yeah, I say all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what and what really happened for me and happens for a lot is that that uh, that year you give birth is a time of reckoning. I had to come to terms with, you know, grief that I'd had as a child losing my own, my sister Rowena. I was five when she died and she was seven. And I'd just go there in this conversation because I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting to have to go back to that place. But, of course, I did. I was in a mother mm. in the world. I needed to find out more about her illness. I needed to come to terms with the parts of me that were frozen in that grief so that I didn't pass this on to my daughter. So the best thing that I ever did was realise at six months there's something not right, you know, my head isn't quite right. And I went Mm. to my maternal health nurse. I said, I think I might be depressed or anxious. And she said, of course, my sweetheart, you know, you you haven't slept for six months. You have Mm. hardly, you're hardly eating. You're, you know, she just put it in perspective for me and I went, great. Okay. What do I do now? And she gave me the name of some counselors and then I started asking for more help. So Mm. I say all of that. I did all the same techniques that I used to do and I got some bloody sleep, you know, Mm. so that lack of sleep is a real trigger. The pressure is a real trigger. You just mentioned before that you lost your sister Rowena when she was seven years old and you were five years old. Yeah. Did you have a fear that, you know, when you became a mum of something happening to your babies or to your children? Yes, I had a very strong fear of that and I didn't even realise. I just always assumed because that had been my normal experience of losing a sister that, you know, I sort of had this belief in the back of my childhood head that that was just a normal thing that happened, that families that you always sort of lost one, I think that was my way of really trying to come to terms with the horror and the terror and the sadness of missing her um, mm. and of that really complicated experience and putting her suffering into perspective. All of these things I did as a kid, which was, you know, we, we're clever when we're kids, we have clever brains, but I left a, a bit of a tangle that I, I needed to go back to. Um, and, mm. yeah, my fear was that something terrible would happen so I would notice that I was overly fearful I'd have these thoughts of terrible things happening you know or every potential terrible thing that could happen like there was a you know a dog would be in the vicinity and I'd grab my baby and you know hide her from the dog like I was really a little over the top <laughs> compared mm. to my friends who were much more relaxed now Did that's a sign that you're like anxious visualizations we yes. having like yeah because I get that too and it's scary <laughs> yeah it's really scary and you're like, yeah. you know, you have to put it into the perspective of, wow, I'm a really good mother. I'm yeah. thinking of rather than I'm a terrible mother, I'm always thinking these terrible, terrible thoughts. It's actually our lower brain doing everything it can to make sure that our child survives. And mm. if we can have a sense of humour about that, which is hard when, you're, when your body doesn't feel like yours and when you're overtired, but the mm. more playful I could be with that and the more I could go, all oh, right, that's actually a sign I'm a good mother, not a bad mother, Yeah, the easier it was to step confidently into 
my experience. So take us back a little bit, Claire, to your childhood. You've been so generous in sharing some of your childhood experiences and your upbringing with the world from your self-image and weight issues. How have those experiences shaped who you are? It's sort of funny, isn't it? Because in that list, there's probably, the, you know, some of the worst things that ever happened to me in what has been a really great, fortunate life. The reality is that despite these things that happened, you know, I knew I was loved. I was well held in that by a mother and father who were good people and gave a shit about me, really gave a shit about all of us. And they didn't mm. even swear. They would never use the word shit. But mm. um, my dad might have muffled word when he'd really had enough. <laughs> so I was very lucky in my childhood. Um, my parents weren't overly interested in things of the outside world. We were brought up Catholic, which for all its foibles did give us a structure and a sense of faith and hope. We probably had what, you know, the best that's on offer from religion, I think, was modelled by my parents. That sort of idea of justice, fairness, service, those things were really lived experiences. So mm-hmm. I always felt like, you know, lucky to be the youngest in that family. But we were living with some really big gaps. We were living with the loss of a sister. We were living with the loss of a daughter. You know, we were living with this idea of, needing there's a lot of pressure internally for me thinking I've got to make the most of my life I never had that moment in life where you're like oh everything's fine and nobody dies and Mm. magical thing you know it just wasn't like that we were sort of living in the children's hospital by Mm. Rowie's side I spent a lot of my childhood trying to find places for complex feelings and Mm. that made the performer in me that came out as the artist in me it also left me the legacy of using food as a coping mechanism which I I know I'm not alone in that and then struggling Mm. with my weight in a world that told me that I was too big at every opportunity overtly and covertly Mm. um So the experience of motherhood for me put these things in perspective. It gave me Mm. a chance to really ask that question, well, which of these stories am I going to keep telling myself and living with? Which ones am I going to challenge now? You get this gift of burning courage and and also a whole heap of other things, but that's one of the things that can come with it. You're going, right, that instinct to protect can be a real driver and it certainly was for me. Let's talk a little bit more about Tame Your Inner Critic. I want to know more about it and I want to know you know, how it came about and what people can expect from it. <laughs> so Tame Your Inner Critic is an Audible original that I created with my husband, Marty Brown, who I do all of my projects with. He's also our producer and mm. with um, two colleagues of mine, really beautiful human beings, Dr. Charlotte Keating, who's a wonderful science communicator. She was a guest on my show and she, Jay Mueller, who's a voice artist, um, I wrote a script and it was basically taking those lessons that are hidden there in my book, Your Own Kind of Girl, about how to tame that inner critic, how to get on with your big fat dreams, um, how to remind yourself of your courage and power and putting them into a step-by-step, so a five-step free podcast for Audible members something that people can access because that's the question I kept getting asked. Do you teach this? You know, I don't often put this on the record, but I'm a life coach. I trained in 2010, I believe it was, when I was writing an album called The Winter I Chose Happiness. I was challenging myself to put, you know, my ideas into lessons and be able to pass them on because I was constantly being asked to coach people and give advice and so on. So I use those skills in this in a new way. It's really about how to spot that pesky little voice of the inner critic hiding in the corners of your mind because it presents differently in all of us. Yours is called Mm. Frank, right? Correct. (laughs) And how to name your inner critic 
in order to tame it and then how to dismiss it or get in conversation with it in a way that doesn't debilitate you. So I learned this technique because I had to. It was a survival technique I learned after my very difficult experience at 21 where I had an acute episode of mental ill health. You know, I was in a backpackers, wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating. My childhood ghost came back to visit me and I had a full-blown nervous breakdown and had to come home tail between legs and it took me some months to recover and I didn't think I would recover. I didn't know that people like me could recover. I thought I was broken for good and I absolutely was not. I was just having a really shit time. Mm. (laughs) And, And I was caught in that cycle of listening to that survival voice, the one we referred to before that warns us, that scares us. I didn't know then that I had a choice whether or not I listened to that voice, believed that voice, you know, and grew that voice in me. Mm. So one of the techniques that I came across that really helped me and was was learning to, I couldn't meditate. I was really bad at it. You might be mm. like, It's hard, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I've just, <laughs> I, it's not as easy as it was. It's really <laughs> restless. And so I started, I read a book by Jack Cornfield called A Path With Heart and it was about naming the emotions, you know, you're supposed to name your emotion like love, love, love or lust, lust, lust or grief, grief, grief. You name it as you're observing your emotions and I was a bit shit at that. So instead I just, I couldn't work out what the hell I was feeling. I just knew it was shit. So I gave that mm. umbrella feeling a name and I called it Frank. So I just called it that and I started playing with trying to dismiss it. I'd have that fear Mm. thought before I applied for uni or before I got up and spoke at uni or before I handed in something or went on a date and the fear would be debilitating so much so sometimes Mm. I couldn't leave the house. But if I learnt to say, oh, fuck off, Frank, which, Mm. (laughs) excuse my language. No, but. um, Flip off, Frank, is what I say in the Tame You're in a Critic. I named it and I learnt how to dismiss it. And that's the technique that I use to sort of get me step by step through the day and through Mm. the years and then through the career challenges and so on. And it's not that the aim is to tell that part of us to go away. It's just putting in perspective. Mm -hmm. That's our lower brain telling us the world's dangerous and we have a higher brain where we can actually talk back to it and say, yeah, maybe, but, you know, I'm getting on with it anyway. Yeah, I've got shit to do. (laughs) When you said that we control our own thoughts, which is so simple, but I've never, ever thought of it like that. Like mm. you're so right, as you said. Like you need sometimes you just got to ignore them and get on with it. Much easier said than done, but it certainly is. it is and the point. Great way to look at it. One of the really great or the particular things I like to define is we can't necessarily control the first thought. That's the automatic thought. That's the survival mm-hmm. thought. The kind of thoughts that our ancestors had and allowed us to survive and run from the tiger and protect our young and not fall over a cliff and all of those kind of very important things. But, <laughs> I like that with my child. Don't put that in your mouth every time we're at the park. <gasps> that could be poisonous. That could be poisonous. That's right. I must have missed that memo. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we all have our own particular anxieties or otherwise. But that second thought, that mm. is ours for the takings and mm-hmm. that is us saying, you know, actually... I'm going to choose not to continue that story. I'm going to dismiss that thought. And it can take practice. Don't lose heart if you try it and it doesn't work the first time. But have a play with it. It's It's been incredibly effective for me. And it's basically, as Dr. Charlotte explains it, it's kind of a hacked form of CBT that I stumbled across and many other people have too, where it's brain training. We we don't get mm. to control the second, the first thought, but we do get some say over the second one and which one we keep telling ourselves. Well, it's a really great, think- like, 
digestible and really enjoyable way to yeah. learn those tools. Thank you so much for saying that. Look, it's it's mad. It is mental. You know, when we wrote it, we're like, gosh, people are either going to love or hate this one. This is, But I wanted to find a different and playful way to do self-development, to yeah. teach these skills because so much self-development is so earnest and so worthy. So you're, you're a woman of many talents, a musician, a public speaker, life coach, broadcaster, <laughs> best-selling author, and that's probably just naming a few. What makes all. you feel the most fulfilled? <sighs> we got you on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in my working life, what I've loved is, you know, my job gives me enormous ability to connect with people and to find, you know, ways to tell house stories you know group stories and then that starts conversation so I speak from my experience and then I get to hear back and have conversations with friends like you so that's really fulfilling Mm. my favorite thing in the world to do is to be useful you know that's really really selfish actually it sounds all noble but truly that's what always gives me hope is thinking "Hmm, what else have I got to give Um, and when that finishes I'll retire and just tend to a garden which I think will happen but in my personal life the things that give me joy are really really simple beautiful you touched on before that you have had great success with Tame Your Inner Critic but what I wanted to ask was you know in what other ways have you had to adapt and sort of pivot during this time of COVID especially being in Melbourne we're in Melbourne too it's a tough time to be in Victoria we've had one of the strictest lockdowns I think in the world so it's been a long it's been a long haul when COVID hit I had to cancel a number of tours and events and life changed pretty quickly. I'd longed all my life for a quieter time, you know, a a time at home, all my working life, and here it was all of a sudden and it was a shock, you know, it was a shock and we had to adapt pretty quickly. We are two people who work in the arts industry and our industry had to be put on pause. But what also happened for me personally was my mum got really, really unwell. She had pancreatic cancer and at the start of COVID it progressed terrifically and she was then in hospital um, right through until July when we were able and had to bring her home because she was then in palliative care and they'd banned visitors. So my COVID, a lot of my COVID has been spent having this last time with my mum, loving her, being able to care for her to the best of our ability. And my siblings and I cared for her at home. She passed away in August, start of August. Sorry to hear that, Claire. Sorry to hear that. Thank you, darlings. Mm. And we we were very close. Um, So COVID for me has been, uh, it looks like I'm really, really busy because Tamir and a critic's been out there and doing, you know, the heavy lifting for me and um, and so on. Um, But in reality, it's been a time of trying to um patch together what life looks like without mum um she's a huge enormous part of our life and our presence and all sorts of beautiful things that people have done to you know the we've got her dutch apple tart recipe which she gave to us you'll hear it at the end of the audiobook um and people have been cooking dutch apple tarts and sending us photos and the house has been full of flowers and meals but grieving in this time of lockdown has been really really challenging and quite lonely so I'm just two months on from from mum's death and just saying to be able to be back in the world a little bit. The way that's changed my working life is for years I've been talking about how I can take my, it's really my signature event, you know, it's called Sing Song Showtime. It's where I take people who think they can't sing. and Everyone can um, sing, right? 
if you can speak, you can sing. You know, I did community <laughs> singing leadership training when I was pregnant with Asha and it was about teaching the health benefits and the joy of singing. And so I have this Sing Song Showtime event. It's sold out every time we've done it over all of these years and it's I take people who don't think they can sing and at the end of the day we are performing a full concert and three-part harmony in front of their family and friends. It's a That's wonderful awesome. day. <laughs> So my project at the moment is thinking, is it possible to take an event like that or something of that nature and turn it and take it virtual, take it online and have that engagement? So (laughs) that's the project that's been keeping my mind happy and busy. I won't release another album until I can tour again and um, I will write another book, but that's a little while away too. So that's where I'm at during this COVID time. Amazing. So what do you do for yourself when you require a bit of, you know, Claire time, self-care? time out well look I've been guilty uh, as guilty as the next woman of pouring myself a glass of wine and closing the door (laughs) (laughs) getting on the phone to my girlfriends um but I do a lot of I do love a lot of writing um I love playing my guitar and my piano making music I love watching I've been watching Borgen on tv I love a good podcast um I like going for long walks sounds like Walks on beaches, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a, a online date. <laughs> Hang on. Speaking of dates, what about what about your relationship with Marty? Because he's your husband, but you also work together. So, how do you find the balance between work and family time and relationship time? How much detail do you want, friends? <laughs> so, the way we do it is the way we used to do it is um, we had a cut off time day where we no longer talked about work. Now we, we say, can I ask a work question? We're working in the same space together, you know. He's a person I make the best work with and he also happens to be the person that I've made my whole life with. So it's really important we get along. <laughs> and we fight sometimes like kids, you know, and we've had seasons when there were, the pressures were all too much and we would look at each other and go, how are we going to remember how much we love each other because right now I just want to be far 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 away from you I know (laughs) I know that look in Marty's eyes and I'm like oh goodness so I'm interested to know Claire with all the work that you've sort of done on yourself um, you know I'm interested to know how you feel about yourself now because you talk about that sort of pivotal moment in your life when uh, you're in your early 20s in London and you had what was described to you as this nervous breakdown has there been a moment since then well I described it as a nervous breakdown my therapist told me it was a breakthrough yeah right (laughs) and I thought I thought "Mm, I'm not sure how I feel about that language but it turned out to be correct so yes sorry to interrupt yeah has there been a moment since then that you've realized you know that like I've done it I'm no longer defined by my anxieties or my body issues or my you know my problems in the past and you know now I'm defined by the person that I am right now or is it just a continuous work there have been many moments like that many moments and I completely forget five minutes later and I'm back at the start again square one every time I have to sort of yeah um, oh, look, I can't sort of, it's night and day, the, the confidence and I was in such a different space. And so for me, the, the hope never left though. There was always just a twinkle, a little tiny twinkle of hope that, you know, I had these big fat dreams. I wanted quote unquote an amazing life. And I wrote a list of all the things I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to write a novel and make music and have children and act in the theater and make a million dollars and, you know, 
this list as a 20, 21-year-old. Mm. And it amazes me that the, you know, I've still got many, many things I want to do, but that by having a long view, a gardener's mentality in my career, I've been able to live some of those dreams. You know, that's a mm. real honour and it's really thanks to my wonderful audience, my wonderful community, people that I work with, the industries that I work with, you know, the support that I've been able to ask for and get, being offered and said yes to. But I will always have that part of my brain that tells me I'm not good enough. I'll always have mm. the part of my brain, very normal, average human brain that says I'm not trying enough, I'm not doing enough, I've already failed, it's too late, you're too fat, you're too, you fucked that up, you know. Mm. All of those stories, you're too thin, it didn't really matter. There's just a part of us that's always striving and agitated and Mm. it's always my job to be training that part of me, to be showing kindness if I can or dismissal if I need to, you know, to be actively not giving in to that that voice of self-doubt which Mm. and learning to manage it and over the years it's much softer now you know I don't hide the way that I did and that's something that's the one of the glorious things about being in your 40s. Has speaking about it openly and I guess in a public forum helped that? Well, I wouldn't have done that unless I'd done a lot of speaking and thought about it in a private forum first. So yep. for me, that journey of really being in a settled place with it was imperative. I don't want to, mm. I never wanted to be someone who took me a while to learn how to talk about grief in a way that didn't trigger me, you know, make me less useful in the world or trigger others, um, how to talk about difficult experiences and find the light in them. I wouldn't have written a story like your own kind of girl unless I'd worked on it for all of those years. I mean, I told myself I'd write that Mm. book at 22 and I didn't get the courage to do it until 40. So, yeah, the self-doubt is ever-present and the beauty of that is that I am able to now play with it and speak on it and name it and help other people get on with their big fat dreams without imagining that Mm. you know that that voice of self-doubt will go away one day I mean does sometimes and sometimes I think I got it licked and then it goes hi I'm back because life keeps going life keeps regressing creeps right back in there what about with your kids being teenagers now are you sort of like actively <laughs> maybe coaching's not the right word but you know discussing like anxiety and self-doubt and all that sort of stuff with them or are they sick of hearing it mum <laughs> they may they may well be sick of talking about it um i think it would be hard you would be hard pressed to find a human who hasn't at some point experienced self-doubt fear about the world uncertainty and so on um my commitment to them as a mum was to be really honest in a way that's helpful. But sometimes you just listen. You got to listen and offer and they have language and frameworks available to them and a culture around them that's very different to the one I grew up in and I'm really grateful for that. It's, you know, I, I speak openly, my friends do, you guys do. The world does, yeah. the school does. They've got a lot more complex things to deal with. But to be able to talk openly about, good mental health, poor mental health, about good habits and bad habits. That's They're way ahead of the game. You know, they've got a lot more skills than I did at their age. Claire, you are such an inspiration. Aww. Like, Thank you so much for having, you know, for chatting to us today. It's been an honour to have you as our guest and 
We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. It's been lovely. Mm, you are such an inspiration and such an advocate for harnessing anxiety, which is such an important topic to talk about. So thank you. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and for what you're trying to do and what you are doing with this conversation. I really appreciate that. This is the kind of conversation that I would love to stumble upon if I were back in that early part of my journey of motherhood. That's it for today. It was so lovely catching up with Claire. Make sure you check out her five-part audiobook, Tame Your Inner Critic on Audible and her best-selling memoir, Your Own Kind of Girl. Head to incommonprojects.com.au for the show notes and to find out more about Claire. Hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Talking In Common. And as always, thanks for listening.